When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Please note, this podcast is not suitable for children. You're listening to Justice, a podcast series exploring all aspects of the criminal justice system with me, prison philanthropist and founder of One Small Thing, Edwina Grosvenor. In this week's episode, I talked to criminal justice expert Ian Acheson. Ian led the landmark review of extremism in prisons and probation in 2016 and talks to me about the current state of play and the changes still needed. Hello, I'm Ian Atchison. I work for myself now, but I've done a pile of different things in my working career to date, most of which have been involved in either one end or the other of the criminal justice system in England and Wales. You can probably tell from my accent, I'm uh, Northern Irish. But uh, after university and a few career misfires in England, I joined the prison service as an officer on the uh, Accelerated Promotion Scheme for graduates, uh, I think that was 1992. I served for 18 months as a prison officer as part of this scheme. Back then, uh, you, you had to spend a, a significant amount of time in the landings to um, obtain your jail craft, as it were, in a prison called Grendon, which I'd never heard of uh, when I was given a brown envelope, as was the case in those days, and told that that's where I was posted to. And as you know, Grendon, and certainly at the at the time, was a uh, trailblazer as um, the country's first therapeutic prison. So um, I had to learn a, a great deal very fast, not just about how to be a good uh, prison officer, which arguably I, I got the hang of just about when I got promoted, but also how to work with very damaged and difficult prisoners who were serving extremely long sentences uh, for serious crimes, but do so in a uh, therapeutic environment where they had some control over the way the wing was organised and run. And it was very, very illuminating. And I still think uh, all these years later that being a prison officer was probably the most satisfying and interesting and character building thing I've ever done in my life. Yeah. And then during that time, I noticed that you had, and correct me if I'm wrong, operational command of things like serious prison incidences, hostage negotiations, counterterrorism policy and practice, and particularly relating to the threat posed by the IRA terrorists, which seems to have been obviously quite a theme in your life, which probably led you on to do the work that you did on Islamic extremism in prisons in this country. 
Yes, I, I think, um, I mean, obviously we're talking about much later on. I wasn't doing all that as a prison officer. Right. <laughs> but uh, much later on in my career when I, I did various other things and uh, ended up as a senior civil servant in the Home Office. But in between those two times of walking the landings as a, uh, a prison officer, basic grade prison officer, and being at the policy end of things in quite a senior position, I did get involved in managing violent extremism and trying to understand violent extremism. And again, coming from a border county in Fermanagh where I had unfortunately a, a, a visceral experience of the destructiveness of violent extremism in the conflict that uh, everybody knows is known as the Troubles mm. that ran from the late 60s until the, uh, the late 90s. So I, I had it kind of bred in the bone, if you like, and I've always had an interest in why people are motivated to uh, commit atrocious crimes in the name of an ideology. So when I was in the prison service as a, a relatively junior governor, I was given the job after the escape from HMP Whitemore by IRA prisoners. Whitemore's a high security prison in Cambridgeshire, your listeners will be aware. And it was supposedly escape proof and built in the early 90s and housed most of the IRA terrorists who were then convicted for crimes uh, in GB. And they escaped and after that, the prison service was trying to figure out, following uh, an excoriating review of the escape, which basically said that uh, staff had been completely conditioned and were in retreat from uh, sophisticated, ideologically inspired prisoners that they hadn't really encountered before, and they were pushed back in much the same way as happened in the Mays prison, which is the main terrorist prison at the time in Northern Ireland, pushed back out of the way so the prisoners effectively ran their own regimes and did whatever they wanted, including um, trying to escape. Right. Uh, and I went to have a look at uh, what the Northern Ireland service was doing in terms of counter-conditioning and uh, came back <laughs> with the view that what they were doing is putting the army in the perimeter of the prison with uh, instructions to shoot prisoners who were escaping. And inside the perimeter, anything went. Not hugely sophisticated. Not terribly illuminating. But it certainly, certainly, you know, it it, it created a, an early interest in the, the motivations of uh, people who offend in that way that has stayed with me uh, to date. So at what point then were you asked to come and do the piece of work that you did in 2016 about extremism in our prisons? And can you paint a picture for our listeners of, you know, what the problem is that we actually have? Sure. Well, I had left public service in 2015 so I'd worked in the prison service, I'd run a charity for prisoners, I'd worked for the Youth Justice Board for about six or seven years and, and I ran the uh, Youth Justice Board in South West England. And when I left the Home Office, I uh, was the Chief Operating Officer for the Equality and Human Rights Commission, which is the GB's legal regulator for the Equalities Act and the uh, Guardian of the Human Rights Act. So I, I'd accrued a bit of experience across uh, the criminal justice system, rights, uh, and so on. And um, when I left, uh, I got contacted by a mutual friend uh, of, of Michael Gove's and uh, was asked if I would um, be prepared to look into uh, how the prison service at the time was managing the threat posed by violent extremism, what the threat actually was, and the gap between the two would become uh, the recommendations. That's a very shorthand way of describing how, how I got asked to be involved. And I had some meetings with the then Secretary of State for Justice, Michael Gove, and he was very clear, having come from the uh, education brief, he was Education Secretary prior to his movement to uh, justice. 
And that was at the time of the uh, so-called Trojan horse affair in Birmingham, where there was a uh, concern that Islamists had infiltrated several schools in Birmingham. So I think Michael Gove came to the justice system and thought, reflecting on that experience, I want to be absolutely sure that our prison system that I'm now responsible for has got a grip on Islamist extremism, which in terms of its lethality and scale was and remains the biggest threat in terms of violent extremism, not the only threat, but the, the biggest one still, in my opinion. And he, he asked me to go in and investigate. And I, having been a 10-year veteran of the prison service, simply said to him, there's two things I need. I need your absolute authority to go wherever the evidence dictates. And I need you to be the person who is commissioning the review, not some uh, internal prison service review, because if that's the case, I won't do it because it will go wrong and it will be subverted. Right. So you started visiting the and prisons. he agreed. <laughs> yeah, luckily. <laughs> I mean, I'm not saying he agreed that, um, uh, that my, on my feeling that it would be subverted, but he certainly did give me all the support I needed and all the authority I needed with my brilliant little expert team to go in and start exploring this phenomenon and understanding the, uh, the scale of the threat and the capacity of the justice system to meet it. Right. And when you say small team, how small was the team and how long did it take? We only had six months to do it, and oh, right. there were uh, five people on the team. OK. And can you, I mean, even if it's a rough mm. sort of stab at the statistics and the numbers, how many extremists do you think we have in our prison service in England and Wales today? Uh, that's a really complicated question, okay. Alina, because uh, it's, a, well, it's, a very, it's a very fluid situation. Right. And it's also, uh, for actually for some good reasons, it's never particularly well publicised. Okay. What we do know is that we have just over 200 people who are inside who've been convicted of a terrorism offence. Okay. That's a, a scheduled offence under the Terrorism Act. Okay, and so that and that's out of sort of 87,000 roughly, I mean, very Indeed. roughly, that's sort of just around, so you're saying just over 200. So that that yeah. at least gives people a, a sense of the, of the numbers. And what sort yeah. of risk do you believe they pose? I mean, because obviously there's the risk they pose in prison yeah. and then there's the risk they pose outside prison. Yeah. Well, this is a complicated question because if you're talking about risk from violent extremism, you are not necessarily just talking about the 200-odd prisoners who've been convicted of a terrorism act offence. In fact, what we can see is that a significant number of those prisoners uh, aren't posing any risk at all. They have gone into prison and they are fairly well behaved and quiet. Some of that is due to the fact that there are different types of offender. If we just focus on Islamists at the minute. So there's a kind of uh, Al-Qaeda generation uh, cohort of offenders who um, came in post 7-7, uh, whose political philosophy is probably different and whose psychological makeup is certainly, I think, different from IS-inspired offenders. So we, we have a generation of, of uh, offenders who are networked to large plots that were either stopped completely or they were detected after things happened. I'm, I'm trying to generalise here, but, but they've got a more of a political philosophy. In other words, get the invaders out of our lands kind of philosophy. And some of those people, I, I know from, from uh, what I've been told by insiders, they, they've said, we, we've done this. Yeah, we've uh, committed this attack. Uh, we've made our point, and now we're just going to get on with our sentence. Whereas other IS generation offenders who are perhaps uh, inspired or motivated as lone actor terrorists 
who aren't connected to plots, who may have lots of other psychological problems and uh, that might affect their motivation and so on, who seem to be uh, more impulsive and more suggestible, whose ideology is, is different, they, they pose a different problem. But we're still talking about that 225. What we're not talking about is an unknown but certainly larger set of people around that who may have come into prison uh, for uh, completely unrelated offences, but because prison is such a perfect incubator for violent extremism, have become radicalised in some way, either you know from external sources, from non-criminal peers as a result of joining a gang, for example, and, and who, po- who therefore pose a threat, who've either become a threat in, in prison or were a threat outside but haven't been as yet detected or convicted of a terrorist offence. And to, to scale some of what I'm saying into a, a number, certainly when we were looking at the prison services screening programme, which is called Pathfinder, for people at risk of being drawn into terrorism, so it was a, a reporting system that was uh, developed internally by the, the prison service using a, a tool called ERG22+, Plus, which basically examined people's behaviours under a different series of domains. Uh, it's a very complicated uh, screening tool. But in any case, certainly when we were uh, looking at the problem back in 2016, there were over a thousand people who had been screened. Now, that doesn't mean to say there are a thousand violent extremists in prison, very far from it, because a lot of those people would be screened, as they are in various screening processes for violent extremism outside custody, and there will be no further action taken because there is no risk detected. But but certainly we are talking about a significant number of people, I think, who are in prison, and because prison is such a, a perfect magnifier of violent extremism, you've got lots of often violent, uh, impulsive, credulous young men, typically, not, not exclusively, coming into prison who are alienated, who are isolated, who are searching for meaning and searching for belonging and actually searching for excitement as well. And they meet with people who say, come and uh, join our gang. Uh, yeah. For example, join a, a, a gang uh, which is uh, mobilised by religion. So join our Muslim uh, brothers. All you need to do is convert. And people might well do that coming into prison for entirely pragmatic reasons. Because even before the, the upheaval of COVID-19, we were looking at an extremely disordered, as you well know yourself, Edwina, prison system where every metric of decency and um, safety was, was completely in a nosedive. So you're talking about people going into a very unstable environment and being offered a sense of belonging, being offered a, way, a simple way to explain their, their situation, being offered camaraderie, a kinship, a way to survive this experience. And you can see why prisons are uh, incubators. Exactly. What I don't want to suggest is the problem is absolutely sort of massive. Uh, it, it isn't. Prisons deal with all sorts of, of different threats every day. This is just one of those threats. It's not massive. But I guess a couple of things there. The idea that someone could become radicalised in prisons is deeply troubling, isn't it? And we'll move on in a minute to the recommendations you um, posed uh, in order how to deal with these problems. But, you know, for a public service to be taking people in in order to keep the public safe, for them to become radicalised in prison, to then go out, and then, of course, our mind all always goes to Drummer Lee Rigby and the horrific murder. Yeah. And yeah. more uh, recently, the horrific 
stabbings on London Bridge by one sort of lone mm. operator. Yeah. Yes, it's a small number, but it seems to have such an enormous impact on our psyches and our, the way we go about our lives, because obviously it's so wrapped up in politics and policy at the same time. Yes, you've put it perfectly. That's the issue. Even though the number is small and the problem that you have described exists, it's very difficult to deal with, but we're not dealing with it still in the right way, in my opinion. But the lethality is, you know, if you, this argument always gets made. You say, well, you know, how many people were killed by terrorism last year? And, you know, how many people were killed in, you know, in car accidents? The, the, the scale is, is tiny in comparison. But the magnitude of what happens, the outrage, the um, destabilization to uh, community morale, the assault on public perceptions of safety and so on is absolutely yeah. massive. If just looking back to those two uh, horrific events that you've described. So we have got to get a grip on this because there's a, there's a public safety issue that needs to be addressed. And, you know, to be fair to, to um, Robert Buckland, uh, he did respond uh, in a way that certainly satisfied public outrage in terms of terrorist prisoners being released automatically, that loophole that allowed them to be released at the halfway point in their in their sentence. That's now been changed and they will be under increased supervision when, when they leave. But as I have consistently said, it's not really about the number of months or even years you add to custody. No. It's not about the quantity, it's about the quality of what you're doing there. Exactly, and I think that is misunderstood a, a lot of the time, this sort of knee-jerk understandable emotional outpouring hmm. as a reaction to these horrific events. What people seem to struggle to understand is that the length of time someone serves in a prison does not necessarily reduce their risk. It is the work that you have to do with them, whether that's palatable to someone or not. It's hmm. just the truth, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it is. And there's, there's an even more uncomfortable truth that we might want to come on to. And that that is that there are some people for whom it, it might be necessary for us to detain forever until they're dead, mm. if their ideology remains so bulletproof, as it were. Mm. It's an unfortunate turn of phrase, but you, you know what I'm saying, yeah. that we can't be sure that they will be safe when, when they are released. And that throws a whole load of uh, moral and ethical issues up in the air. But, you know, public safety has to trump the rights of people who may be at risk of trying to kill innocent civilians when they're released. It's, an, it's a very subjective game, obviously, and we will get it wrong. And, uh, you know, we, there may be people who are detained if we fix our attitude towards risk and become much more robust and sceptical about making sure uh, that we release people only when we're as satisfied as we possibly can be that they're not going to be any harm, you're going to see terrorist prisoners in custody for very much longer. Yeah. Uh, than, than they are at the moment. And you are going to see that risk projected inwards instead of outwards. Because, you know, as I said consistently in my pronouncements on social media and in the, the actual media, we've got British citizens putting on uniforms and going into prisons every day who are available and vulnerable targets, not to mention other prisoners that are around people who have uh, become radicalised or people who've been imprisoned for terrorist offences. And we saw that play out you know, in that appalling incident in Whitemoor in January, where it's quite clear to me the uh, two people who were dressed in, in fake suicide vests who attacked staff were looking to take a hostage. And I can only imagine uh, the, the fate of that poor uh, officer if uh, he'd been taken hostage, as it was because of the, the sort of heroic actions and the quick actions of 
his colleagues. Uh, he was saved from a possibly gruesome fate because these people are still active, clearly, inside prison. They still believe that they are fighting a war and their um, opponents are the people around them predominantly in uniform. What I was really struck by when I was reading through the recommendations that you made, um, mm. which is obviously the point on how do and how does the prison system deal with this, I was actually quite blown over by the fact that none of this was seemed to be sort of rocket science. So staff training, um, yes, mm. <laughs> that makes sense. The recruitment and deployment of imams which seems sensible. You need to make sure that the way you recruit mm. them and what they're doing inside needs to, you know, uh, there needs to be obviously huge sort of safety nets yeah. around that and scrutiny of it. Extremist religious literature needs to be removed. Well, what is it doing there in the first place? Um, <laughs> in, you know, so obviously it was a sort of well-researched paper and all the rest of it, but I was quite struck by the recommendations, mm. which seems sort of like, well, well, why on earth was that not happening in the first place? Yeah, we were pretty struck as well, I must say. Right. And I've described it in the, the main body of the report, which for, you know, for perfectly uh, legitimate national security reasons can't ever be released because it uh, relates to secret intelligence and so on that we, we had access to in order to make our judgments uh, and in order to be very clear about what we said about the, the, the nature and the scale of the problem. But um, in the main body of the report, I, I described it as a why these, why these things hadn't been addressed as a lethal combination of arrogance and ineptitude. And I added to that uh, the notion of institutional timidity. But I mean, th there was a sort of arrogance there that said, actually, we're the world experts in this. You know, we've dealt with the IRA. Right. So, so we know what we're doing here. Thanks very much for coming in and <laughs> okay. trying to tell us our, our, our core task. And, and that, you know, really did create a massive problem. There was a completely misplaced sense of, of where the experts were getting on with it, which extended basically to the end of Zone 1 in London. And then when you went out to actual prisons and spoke to operational staff, they were completely overwhelmed by the problem and felt very unsupported. And uh, there was a, a violent extremism unit at prison service headquarters that was essentially just a briefing unit for ministers and didn't really do anything. Right. There were a, a huge number of operational and structural defects. Many of those were due to the fact that the people that were making the decisions in senior roles about violent extremism, uh, many of them had absolutely no operational experience at all and uh, really didn't seem to get out of London much. Right. And, um, you know, that the, the gap between, which we still see, sadly, to this day, between the rhetoric that was coming from the prison service and the reality on the ground was, was pretty profound. And you had to be out there and talk to staff who said, you know, we feel unsupported, uh, we feel exposed, we feel vulnerable. And if we do try to intervene to stop hateful ideologies being disseminated on the landings or in the exercise yard or wherever it is in prison, uh, we get accused of being racist. And that's a bit of a, 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 you know, an iconic thing in the prison service after, you know, Zahid Mubarak's dreadful murder in Felton. Right. And you called for, am I right in saying then the sort of separation of this sort of cohort of inmates? Yes. Into, what did they call them? Sort of jihadi jails or something? I can't remember quite how the, the media portrayed it. But. <laughs> yeah, the, the, the media immediately got the, the wrong end of the stick. Actually, what I uh, recommended, and I went into some detail uh, about this, was that those prisoners who intelligence indicated 
were highly subversive and were a risk to national security because they were basically uh, trying to convert others to violent extremism, needed to be identified and completely separated from the rest of the prison population. And the, this process that I described gave rise to the uh, creation of separation units. Now, the units that have been created and the ethos behind them, as far as I can understand, because I haven't been involved uh, or uh, consulted at all at any stage of their uh, their creation or deployment since the report and its recommendations, my conception of these units was very particular that they shouldn't be punitive, first of all, because you're not trying to magnify any uh, sense of grievance and alienation, which would be dangerous. Your objective is to separate the preacher from his adherents and create a, uh, what I think psychologists would call a cognitive opening by that separation in order to try to intervene and reduce the dangerousness of the person that you have isolated. Now, that in my mind, and I, I haven't had it changed since, doesn't involve a sort of uh, what we've got at the minute, which are our generic sheep dip sort of psychosocial interventions, such as healthy identity intervention although I'm not saying that is a, a useless intervention, but I'm saying if that's your main weapon in the armory, you're not likely to succeed because the routes into and out of um, radicalised offending from what we know globally in terms of, of research and from what we know about the, from the biographies of the terrorist offenders that we've got are hugely diverse. In fact, that's one of the problems. It's a very heterogeneous group. We've got, you know, every everybody from... Losers to bus drivers to university graduates trying to kill us in this country uh, and in other countries. So what we need to do is look at the uh, and concentrate specifically, in my opinion, on the precursor years before violent offending and see if we can determine there problems that exacerbated or, or mobilized the actual violence and see if we can deal with them. So to be simple about this, what I'm saying is some people might need psychological intervention. Some people might need a theological intervention. Some people might need a mental health or substance misuse intervention or a family therapy intervention. Or indeed, some may need uh, trauma-informed therapeutic interventions or a huge combination of them all. Exactly, because as you're sort of talking, it's it's mm. obviously ringing a lot of bells with the work that I do with One Small Thing, which is all about understanding what has happened to someone in order to be able to work with them effectively. And I think it's something that you know, generally we do sort of quite badly nationally, you know, we have to change the question from what's wrong with someone to what's happened to them. And, you know, and some people want to skip the understanding bit. And I understand that it's very difficult for staff who haven't got enough time and they're stretched and they're always in mm. crisis management mode. So I do understand mm. very sort of deeply why that's difficult but if we are going to address any of these problems it needs to come from a point of understanding oh yes i completely agree with you and unfortunately that takes time and a lot of money yeah and I, I suspect that one of the, the problems here is that you are looking at a very small number of people who need a huge amount of sophisticated intervention that uh, needs to last a long time but I'm not sure how you defend not doing that against dead people in London Bridge. Well, exactly. I think we've got to throw the kitchen sink at these people because of the capability that they have both in prison and then outside prison of continuing their mayhem and continuing to be a massive risk to our 
national security. Well, exactly. And something else you mentioned on your recommendations, um, talking about Mm. the outside of the walls, um, is the centrality of communities and the relationship that the state has with communities. Can you elaborate a bit on that? Well, I I think this then goes to the heart of uh, the release, resettlement and reintegration, or in some cases, the integration of terrorist offenders after custody and who should be involved in that. I'm very struck at the minute that in the UK, effectively, the state has the monopoly on the reintegration of terrorist offenders after custody. Now, I completely understand why it needs to have primacy. We've got arrangements in place, um, and you'll be familiar with the acronyms and so on, the multi-agency public protection arrangements that are put in place around high-risk, high-harm offenders are extended to terrorist offenders, and those multi-agency partnerships will include, I, I imagine, in, in relation to terrorists, the police, probation service, psychologists, psychiatrists, the security service, uh, potentially. And they'll all be doing the best job they can in, in managing the threat. But they're not really going to, I think, sustain that reintegration of people who are a bit like sex offenders, really, when they re-enter society. They've got a a series of particular and uh, unique problems and challenges they face in in reintegration. And at the minute, with the state having the monopoly and safety being at the core of that, as it should be, of course, but it, it is a necessary but insufficient way to long term achieve a goal of, of uh, disengagement of the offender from violent extremism. And I, in my opinion, that can only be achieved with the participation of communities. And I think uh, you know, one of the things that recent research, the Crest Advisory Think Tank released research, which basically turned this idea, uh, which is propagated, by the way, by um, advocacy charities for Islamist prisoners, that the Muslim community think that they are being policed and oppressed in relation to uh, to terrorism. There's been quite a lot of evidence now that they are, uh, not only are they uh, understanding of and supportive of the police in their counter-terrorism role, they do want to see themselves as joining into that role. I think that's very powerful and very hopeful, and we must respond to that uh, politically, I think, by getting Muslim communities, uh, and we're talking about Islamism here, of course, um, I can I can certainly talk about the corollary in, in uh, far-right extremism, if you want. But in relation to Muslim communities, I think we need to get them involved in reintegration. I've written about how that might be achieved using a, a kind of community mentoring service, which perhaps is mobilised and managed through the local mosque, for example, to uh, local to where this uh, an offender is going to be uh, released. And of course, all of this is highly controversial mm. and it's very risky. But I am not persuaded that a securitized response alone will guarantee that a, a prisoner that's released from prison will successfully resettle in the community and turn their backs on terrorism. And I think also, if I may say this, we are far too complacent when we rely on uh, simple reoffending figures to advance the argument that prisoners that are released who are terrorist offenders only uh, reoffend in this country in a very small number of cases. We simply have no idea what other offences those prisoners may be contemplating, may have committed, may not have been detected, whether they are moving back into uh, criminality, uh, which often is the case with terrorist offenders. They've got some criminal precursors to their ideological offending. And I, I, I think relying on that as a proxy for an argument to say, well, it's not a big problem, is very misplaced indeed. When we see what one person in Streatham High Road, armed with a a kitchen knife, who's supposed to be being under huge surveillance from the police, can do before he's stopped. 
Yeah, absolutely. Where do you sit with, can someone be de-radicalised? I just want to sort of explore the sort of notion. So you believe it can be done? I'm not sure I'm a great fan of the whole concept of radicalisation or de-radicalisation. It feels very binary to me. Right. When you're describing extremely complex fluid and not necessarily linear process. I think it's a, it's a fairly glib way that some academics and frankly some snake oil salesmen trying to, to make a buck out of this ha- have come up to describe it. Right. Is it better to talk about sort of actually reducing someone's propensity for violence? Yes, I think reducing dangerousness, reducing harm is the name of the game. Now, I, I do think actually because I've met some people who've been through this process, who have been terrorist offenders, who have completely recanted their, their, their former ideology. I do think it is possible for people to become completely disengaged from violent offending. My great friend, Sean O'Callaghan, who, uh, whose name you might have heard of, who was a former IRA terrorist who actually murdered two people uh, and then turned into a police informant for the Irish police because he was so sickened by what he has done. He, he is an example. He died quite recently of somebody who I genuinely believe completely disengaged from his offending and actually did so in a way that was very helpful to the state in explaining and helping uh, people who live in a, a moral universe away from offenders. And that's one of the issues and one of the problems we've got with de-radicalization programs, incidentally, uh, and why we need uh, more Islam uh, in terms of dealing with Islamism. That's a, another issue. But um, I think it is possible for this to happen. It probably happens over a a long time. And it requires, as far as I can tell, fairly intensive, high quality mentoring relationships that are sustained over a long time. And we are talking again about quite a lot of expense for a relatively small number of people who are capable, if they go back to their old ways, of inflicting huge damage on society. So I think, obviously, having said that, it's very worthwhile. So I do think it is possible for people to completely repent. Equally, I do think it's possible that there are some people who will never, as long as they have breath in their body and they're able to stand upright, you know, desist from their uh, radicalised mindset. And those are the people I think we need to be very robust with and very clear about, and if necessary, detained for life. And are there any good programmes? I think I know the answer to this question, but when it comes, you know, if there was someone listening sort of thinking, well, what are the programmes out there and how good are they? I mean, you've obviously said there's lots of different people who will have lots of different um, needs and will respond to different things, whether it's a theological one, a spiritual one, a political one. Are there any programmes that you can mention? I think generically what... I've just mentioned what seems to work best. Incidentally, these work best with all offenders, in my opinion, or people you know, people in need, is the development of high-quality uh, relationships with pro-social uh, people, who, uh, and those relationships last a very long time, right. as long as is necessary. So uh, generically, I think things that are built around that will probably have a high degree of success. There's an intensity there, though, that needs to be sustained. Otherwise, again, you know... <laughs> I think the uh, Ministry of Justice and the Home Office are are beginning to look again at uh, theological interventions. And I I find it extraordinary, frankly, that there are quite a few criminologists who will say, you know, oh, Islam is is a red herring in terms of dealing with with Islamism. It's it's much more complicated than that. And I don't say a a theological intervention is a silver bullet because this, you know, everything is risky in this game. 
And sometimes, actually, what we have to do are take some controlled risks and see whether things work and not constantly hark back to, you know, the, the um, council of despair, which is, well, where's the evidence that this works? Sometimes with something as profoundly different and relatively new as ideologically inspired terrorism in the 21st century, you're going to have to suck it and see. We're going to have to try different yeah. approaches. But I, I do think we have to get modern and moderate and credible uh, Islamic scholars involved in helping us change the mindset of people you know, who fundamentally believe on some level that they've got theological permission to murder innocent men, women and children who don't adhere to the same bigoted form of Sharia that they, that they uh, subscribe to. So we've got to get scholars in there who are persuasive and compelling and credible and can relate. I mean, one of the problems is, frankly, that, you know, uh, some dude with a, a long grey beard who doesn't have English as a first language, who's an assistant imam in a high security prison, who's dealing with a kind of hip hop generation, young Muslim man, you, you're kind of not on a great starting point even for relationship building there. So we have to, we have to get people who are credible into that space. And actually what that means is we might need to take some risks with conservative imams as well. Now, this is difficult territory here, and I can, I can imagine some of your listeners sort of sucking their breath in, but just you know, stay with me here. Uh, there, are, there are many people who would subscribe to, say, for example, a Salafist a denomination within Islam, who are very conservative, but who would absolutely never dream of carrying out or advocating violent extremism. Now, those people are probably ideologically closest to the mindset of uh, terrorist offenders. So it will be useful, in my opinion, to enlist their support in developing programs which will tackle this defective and uh, deformed version of Islam that terrorist offenders uh, subscribe to, which is very simplistic uh, in terms of its um, rules and which uh, you know, is, is so destructive. So we're going to have to take some chances here. But again, involving the Muslim community in dealing with this problem, which is absolutely, in my view, related to religion and absolutely related to Islam, and it's specious to argue otherwise. And it just feels to me like virtue signaling, frankly, to say that, oh, that, you know, this, this uh, phenomenon has very little to do with Islam. It's everything to do with a defective interpretation of Islam. The hundreds of thousands of Muslims who are appalled at this behaviour and themselves victims of it would, would, uh, would agree. So it feels like what you're saying is actually a lot of the answers, um, which is so often the case, are sort of there for us to see, but we've got rather a long way to go in order to combat this one. But Ian, thank you so much for coming along, well, virtually coming along to talk to me. <laughs> we were planning to meet in person, weren't we, in, we a, in a few weeks' time, but at least we can we'll still... We'll meet again, as Vera Lynn once said. We will meet again, exactly. <laughs> and um, it's fantastic talking to you. Thank you so much. Well, you're very welcome. I hope it was useful. Links relevant to this episode can be found in the pod notes below. If you enjoyed listening, we would love it if you would subscribe. Also rate, review and best of all, share this episode. Justice is co-produced for One Small Thing by the London Podcast Company and Pencil Agency. Hey. 
Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 